0: Soon after I came to faith in Christ, I heard a theological word, a term that I had never heard before, but it was a word and and a concept that was to have from that point on a profound impact on my life. A Christian friend introduced me to the theological term predestination. I had never heard that before. I didn't even know that that was in our language. And he explained to me that predestination means that God has preordained and he's predetermined everything that has ever happened or will happen. He told me that predestination also meant that God was in control of every single event in my life as well as in the lives of everyone else. Now that was many years ago, but as I can recall upon hearing about predestination, I had two immediate reactions to it. My first reaction was that as I contemplated the fact that God had ordained everything that had happened, was happening, and would happen in the future, my view of God began to change. I was a new believer, but my view of God began to change. For the first time, I started to recognize God as being actively involved in all aspects of my life, even down to the most minute and mundane details. That was my first reaction. I began to see God in every sphere, every activity of my life. My second reaction to hearing about predestination was that while I, I didn't understand how God could control everything and everyone without making us mindless robots, I instinctively knew that the concept, the thought of predestination had to be true. And the reason I knew it had to be true is because the concept of predestination was consistent with the way that the scriptures present God. They present him as the supreme one, the one who by his own sovereign decree and power created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, and by the way, not only has he created all things, but he sustains all things. Therefore, I reason that if God was truly God, then he would have to ultimately be in control of everything in the universe, or else he wasn't really God. In other words, my thinking was that if God did not predestinate all things and wasn't in control, Of all things, then he was not the all powerful, all knowing supreme being that the Bible presents him to be. Now, as I said, it's been many years since I was first introduced to the thought of God's sovereignty and predestination. I still don't understand it. I still don't understand how God sovereignly controls all things without violating man's will. In fact, nobody really understands that. The most brilliant theologian doesn't understand that. But I believe it. And I believe it because the Bible clearly teaches that God reigns supreme and that no one can ultimately resist His will, that His purposes and His decrees always come to pass regardless of the opposition, whether that opposition be from Satan or demons or government rulers, or people. God's will is always done in the sense that He decrees all things. I just want you to listen to the way the Bible writers speak of God's sovereignty over all things. For example, we read in Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart From generation to generation. Whatever God has planned, that is what happens. From generation to generation. Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. The Lord reigns. Psalm 115, verse 3. I love this. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Now, these verses, we could have gone on and on, but these verses are just a sampling of the many statements in Scripture. I mean the many statements in Scripture that present God as sovereign, supreme, all-powerful, all-controlling, all-sustaining, and the one who determines all things and overrules all of man's resistance to his divine will. That is our God. That is what scripture presents God to be. And so when I was first told about the general concept of predestination, I have to tell you, it really didn't bother me because I felt there was rather self-evident that if God was truly God, then obviously he had to know all things and he had to be completely in charge of all things and completely capable of bringing all things concerning his will to pass. After all, that is what it means to be God. That is the thought of God that he's over all things. He is God and we're not. However, while the concept of predestination in general didn't bother me, what did pose a challenge to my thinking was that the doctrine of predestination also applied to my conversion. You see, what I didn't realize when I first became a Christian was that God was the one who decided and the one who predetermined that I would be saved. I thought that I had made this incredible decision to follow Christ all by myself, because it just made sense to me when I heard the gospel. Eventually, it made sense to me, and I saw my need for Christ, so I accepted him. But as I grew in my understanding of the Bible, I learned that this really was not the case. I discovered that the Bible taught that God at some point in eternity past had made the decision for me that I would become a Christian in the year 1972 and that he had predestined that I would be his child for all of eternity and that's the reason and the only reason why I came to believe in Christ when I was a college freshman. Now this belief that It's God who decides and God who determines who will be saved that troubles a lot of Christians. And it troubles them for several reasons. Number one, because it appears to take away all their freedom of choice. Believing that man has a free will, that bothers them. Secondly, because it looks like it's a travesty of justice, unfairness on God's part, since not all are predestined to believe in Christ. Number three, because as I indicated a moment ago, it just seems so contrary to our conversion experience. Because our conversion sure felt like we, out of our own free will, chose to follow Christ. That's what it felt like. See, like most of us, when I came to faith in Jesus, I thought it was because I had become aware of the most amazing truth that was just too good to turn down that Jesus was the Messiah, He was the Savior, He was the Lord and that he was judged in my place. In fact, I remember thinking about the time I trusted Christ, don't others know about this? And if they do, why haven't they accepted Christ? I mean, I understand being Jewish, I might not have heard about Jesus, but all these Gentiles, don't they know about Jesus? Why haven't they accepted him? But now that I knew the truth, I decided to act on it, and trust Christ to be my savior. So from my perspective, coming to Christ sure looked like any other decision that I had ever made in my life, only this one was obviously the most important one because it had eternal consequences. I was faced with the message of the gospel. It made sense to me. I considered the issues involved in salvation. I weighed my option. I thought through the cost of following Jesus and then decided that this is what I wanted to do, believe on Christ, and voila, I was a Christian. But the Bible doesn't speak of our salvation in terms of any of us deciding on our own to follow Christ, simply because we had the good fortune to hear the gospel and it made sense to us. Instead, it speaks in terms of God himself deciding that we would follow Christ and then supernaturally working in our hearts to make that a reality in our lives. Notice how conversion is expressed in Scripture. In words that clearly point to God as the one who not only initiates our salvation, but who sovereignly brings it to pass. For example, we are called the elect many, many times in the New Testament, indicating that God selected us rather than we selected Him. I mean, that's the thought of elect. That's what the word means. Paul asked the Romans who will bring a charge against God's elect, Romans 8.33. In fact, Jesus made the truth of election abundantly clear when he told his disciples in John 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I don't know how he can make it any clearer. And Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in Colossians 3.12, the apostle calls us those who have been chosen by God. In Ephesians 1 verse 5, Paul says that God predestined us to adoption as sons. And Acts 13.47 states that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now these biblical truths about predestination and election, as they relate to God's sovereignty in salvation, have come to be known down through the years by a variety of names. Sometimes they're referred to as the doctrines of grace, and they're called by that because they emphasize God's grace and mercy in saving us. Others call them Reformation truths because these truths were at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Still others have labeled these doctrines, as I mentioned this morning, Calvinism, because, and only because, it was the French reformer John Calvin, who although, and you need to understand this, he was not the first to see these truths about God's sovereignty in Scripture. Far from it. Others had seen it long before Calvin. But Calvin emphasized them in his teachings, in his sermons, in his writings, like no one else of his day and generation. So the term has commonly been known, these doctrines, as Calvinism. Now there are five very specific tenets or doctrines that make up the heart, the substance of Calvinism, commonly known as the five points of Calvinism. They're laid out in a popular acronym known as TULIP, which stands for the following doctrine. So I'm gonna give you an overview. T stands for total depravity, which we'll look at tonight. And that speaks of man's complete sinfulness and his inability to come to faith in Christ on his own, total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election, which speaks of God's sovereign action in choosing some who would believe in Christ. The L stands for limited atonement. Sometimes it's referred to as definite atonement, but that doesn't fit tulip, so you have to have an L there. L is for limited atonement, which speaks of Christ dying only for those who would come to believe in him and not for the entire human race. I stands for irresistible grace, which speaks of God's irresistible call, his effective or effectual call of salvation to the elect. They can't resist it. They won't resist it because he enables them to repent and believe the gospel and come to Christ. P stands for the perseverance of the saints, which speaks of God keeping his elect saved. In other words, we usually refer to this as eternal security. But in Calvinism, it stands for perseverance of the saints. The saints persevere. They don't walk away from the faith. They don't stop believing. Now, starting tonight, as I mentioned this morning, starting tonight and continuing for the next few months, whenever we observe the Lord's Supper, I want us to look at each of these five doctrines of Calvinism, one at a time. Because when understood properly, and that's the key, when understood properly, they reveal to us how great our God is and how gracious he's been to us in granting us salvation. And therefore, understanding these biblical truths of Calvinism will help you to observe the Lord's Supper in a much more meaningful way. You'll appreciate your salvation more. You'll go deeper in understanding the gospel. It'll help you to see how hopeless you were without Christ. So tonight, I want us to look at the first point of Calvinism, the T in the acronym for TULIP, which stands for total depravity. Now, while some Bible doctrines begin, in fact, most Bible doctrines begin by an explanation of God's character, surprisingly, Calvinism doesn't do that. Calvinism instead begins by explaining to us man's character. And it explains it in two words, total depravity. However, many people misunderstand the meaning of this expression. They don't like this expression because they don't understand it. Because the word total tends to suggest the thought of something being completely or entirely. And when you combine the thought of completely with the word depravity, it sounds as if Calvinism is saying that everyone is as bad in their behavior as they could possibly be, that we are completely and we are totally evil in the way that we live. But that's not true, and everybody knows that's not true. And that's not what Calvinism teaches. But everybody knows that's not true. After all, there are many people, even unsaved people, who are quite nice. They have qualities that are admirable. They're what we would call good, decent people. However, while not everybody behaves as a savage beast, obviously, their sinful corruption, their contamination is so deep with sin, so penetrating that within every one of us, every one of us lies a savage beast ready to be unleashed under the right set of circumstances. And that, my friends, is what is known as total depravity. You see, in wording the first point of Calvinism, that all men are totally depraved, Calvinists are using the word total to speak of the whole or the entirety of man's being and and not his actual behavior. They use the word depravity to indicate that his entire being is affected by sin. It is total. It is complete throughout us. Every part of us is affected by sin. In other words, total depravity means that all human beings have completely been corrupted by inward sin so that every part of their being, their minds, their wills, their affections, their emotions, have been poisoned and polluted by sin. That's what it means to be totally depraved. Perhaps the best definition of total depravity, which sometimes is referred to total inability or radical depravity, was given in a statement by Lorraine Bettner in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Dr. Bettner wrote this. He said, This doctrine of total inability, which declares that men are dead in sin, does not mean that all men are equally bad, nor that any man is as bad as he could be, nor that anyone is entirely destitute of virtue, nor that human nature is evil in itself, nor that man's spirit is inactive, and much less does it mean that the body is dead. What it does mean is that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin, that he is actuated by wrong principles, and that he is totally unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. And so Calvinism teaches that before we were saved, all of us were in a state of total corruption, total depravity, with every part of our being polluted and affected by sin. But the question that we have to ask is this. Well, we know this is what Calvinism teaches, but is this what the Bible teaches? I mean, that's really the most important thing. If the Bible doesn't teach us, we throw it out. Does the Bible teach us? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, because the story of man's sinfulness and his total corruption is clearly revealed in scripture and it starts back in the early chapters of Genesis beginning with Adam and Eve. Genesis chapters 2 and 3 teach that when Adam sinned, he plunged the entire human race into sin because from that point on every descendant of his would be born with a nature that was sinful and in rebellion towards God. You see, Adam's fall didn't simply corrupt us morally. It caused us to die, to die spiritually. That's an extremely important truth to understand. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 say this, The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now this statement about death is a consequence of Adam's sin. It didn't simply mean that Adam would eventually die physically if he sinned, although it included that, but that's not the heart of what it's saying. It meant more than that, it meant that he would die spiritually the very moment that he sinned. He became not only spiritually dead, but alienated from God. Everything was changed. He became totally depraved. That's what happened. He died. And that's why we read in Genesis 3 that right after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they did what? They started to hide from God and started blaming others for their sinful behavior. Adam blamed Eve for leading him into sin. Eve blamed the serpent for deceiving her. See, the reason that God tells us about this, about Adam and Eve's activities after they sinned, is to demonstrate that they who once loved God, they who once walked in fellowship with God, were now fallen creatures, and therefore they were radically changed. No longer did they love God, no longer did they fellowship with Him as they had prior to the fall, but now they were doing what? They were hiding from Him, Blaming others for their sin because they were now dead spiritually and therefore incapable of properly responding to him in love and obedience. That is to say that just as a physical corpse is unable to give any physical response, so they as spiritually dead people were unable to give any spiritual response of love and obedience to God. Incapable of this. And what happened to Adam and Eve? Eve would be true of every one of their children, every one of their descendants to this day. That's why the record of Genesis immediately moves on to tell us about man's sinfulness, showing us that it's now a fallen race. So you have Cain who kills Abel. You have God sending the flood because of the continual wickedness of the world. You have the tower of Babel's rebellion. Let us make a a name for ourselves. Yes, God said to scatter. We're not scattering. We're staying right here making a name for us. So the spiritual death of Adam and Eve was then passed on to all of us. We were dead spiritually and therefore unable to make any kind of a positive response to God. And folks, the fact that we are spiritually dead, that's a very, very, very significant truth. And in many ways, it is at the heart of the debate between those who embrace Calvinism and those who are opposed to Calvinism. See, those who reject Calvinism, they believe that anyone is capable of repenting and trusting Christ to be their savior, capable on their own. They can do this, they say, by an act of their free will. They feel that man has the ability on his own to move from spiritual death to spiritual life by simply choosing to repent and believe the gospel. This is precisely why some ancient but rather misguided theologians taught that God offers us, they said, grace in Christ, but we have to make the first move to accept his grace. And we can make this first move because our wills are free, they said, to do so. But that isn't what scripture teaches. That's not what scripture teaches. The Bible says that none of us are capable on our own of making any move towards God and salvation because before we were converted we were spiritually dead not sick but dead and dead souls are not capable of making any positive response towards God this is exactly what the new testament teaches and teaches very clearly paul said this in ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 he said and you were dead See, the Apostle Paul declares that all people are born into this world, without any exceptions, all are born into this world dead in trespasses and sins. However, this is an unusual kind of of death because though man is spiritually dead and therefore incapable of making any kind of a positive response towards God, he is actually quite active in his dead condition, but his activity is what? It's practicing sin, not moving towards righteousness. Yes, he's dead, but he's active, active in his sin. Notice that Paul explains these sinful activities to us. That's what verse 2 is about, when he says that the unconverted man walks according to the course of this world and the ways of Satan. And then in verse 3, he specifies what he means by this, by saying that we once all lived by the lusts and the desires of our flesh which means that we were all enslaved to the desires of our sinful natures, which is precisely why the New Testament on a number of occasions refers to us as slaves of sin. Paul uses that expression in Romans 6.20, you were slaves of sin. Jesus said in John 8.34, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed, because you were enslaved to your sin. Listen, the way Paul describes us in Ephesians 2 is dead people who are just walking around, living out our sinful desires. It's very similar to the strange concept today of zombies. A zombie is a person who has died, but who's still walking around in his dead state. Zombies, according to Hollywood, are the living dead. And that's precisely how Paul describes us prior to our conversion. We were the living dead. Dead towards God, but walking around while gratifying the desires of our wicked hearts. But not only are we like spiritually dead zombies, being dead in sin also means that we're not interested in becoming alive spiritually. We're not interested in having a relationship with God. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one, There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. Now in these two verses, the apostle tells us two important things about ourselves. Number one, he tells us that there is not one person, he's talking about the unconverted person, he tells us there's not one unconverted person who's righteous. In fact, there's not one totally converted person who's righteous either. But Paul, in context here, is talking about unsaved people. Now, this is a profound truth that most unsaved people have no clue about. They don't understand this because they think that they possess at least some goodness that can please God by some degree, and they can do this by their good behavior. But Paul says that we possess no righteousness at all, not even a hint of it, no righteousness. And what's more, the second thing he tells us about ourselves is we're not interested in seeking after God so that we might come to have righteousness placed on our account. Paul says in verse 11, there's none who understands, there's none who seeks after God. What is he saying? He's saying man is spiritually blind so that he doesn't understand the truth of the gospel, and he's not interested in his blindness and seeking after God so that he might come to understand how to be right with him. He's blind, and he wants to stay that way. Now listen very closely, because here is the crux of the problem and the real difference between the thinking of those who believe in the doctrines of Calvinism and those who just outright reject it. If the unconverted are dead in their sins, enslaved to their sins, and not interested in making any kind of a move to turn from their sin and seek after God, then how can they be made alive and saved by Jesus Christ? Well, those who reject Calvinism say that all men have a free will and therefore they have the ability to respond to the message of salvation when they hear it. In other words, they say every man is free to choose to come to Christ just like he's free to make any choice in life. And they support their belief in man's ability to respond to the message of salvation by appealing to the fact that the Bible abounds in offering salvation to the lost it gives invitations to people to repent of their sin and come to Christ to be saved. For example, Jesus gave this invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That is a call to salvation. That is an invitation. Again, we read of an invitation to salvation in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That again is an invitation to come to Christ for salvation. Now based on these offers of salvation, those who reject Calvinism believe that these invitations imply that every person has a will that is free. A free will and therefore every person has the ability to choose Christ when they hear the gospel preached. Otherwise, they say, why would God give such an invitation? So the issue then really boils down, folks, to this one question. Does unsaved man have a free will or not? If he does, then he's capable of responding to Christ without God's sovereign intervention. But if he doesn't have a free will, then he's without hope apart from God intervening sovereignly in his life and then sovereignly moving him mysteriously to believe in Jesus. So what does the Bible say about man's free will? Or man's will, I should put it. Is it free or isn't it free? Well, based on what we've seen from Genesis and the effects of the fall of man and what we've seen in the New Testament where Paul clearly says that We are dead. Every man born into this world is dead in their sin and trespasses and that he's a slave to his sin and that he doesn't seek after God. We have to conclude that man's will is not free and therefore he does not possess the ability to come to Christ on his own since he is a spiritually dead zombie-like sinner. Now this doesn't mean that man has no ability to make choices and decisions in life. Obviously, unsafe people make all kinds of choices, all kinds of decisions. That's life. However, the Bible makes it clear that when it comes to God, our wills are not free to obey Him. They are not neutral to choose Him either, but rather they are continuously bent on sinning against God. And they can do nothing but sin against God. Why? Because they have a nature That is a sin nature. And that nature compels them to sin against God. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately wicked. The Apostle Paul said of himself, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Listen, before we were converted, we sinned continuously in our thoughts, the words that we spoke, our deeds, our activities, even our motives for doing what we did was sinful, tainted with sin. And we couldn't do anything but sin. Why is that? Because we were born with sinful natures that desired to sin. It was our nature. The nature is the real you. Romans 8, 7 says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it's not even able to do so. Paul said it right there. Unsaved person has a sinful nature that is hostile towards God and he's not able to even subject himself to God. It's impossible. Sin and disobedience to God is all our sinful natures wanted to do and it's all they could do and it's all they did do. See, the issue isn't really a matter of the will. People want to talk about the will, is it free or not? That's not really the issue, but rather the issue is a matter of one's nature. Because the will is subject to do only what one's nature tells it to do. It can't act against its own nature. And the sin nature in an unsaved individual dictates that he will think and behave sinfully. So the will of an unsaved person is not free to obey God because his nature dictates that all he can do towards God is sin. Now, he can make choices, decisions within the realm of his sin, but his will is bound to behave according to his nature. And his nature is a sin nature and only a sin nature. This is why Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you'll be free indeed. You see, when you came to faith in Christ, that was the first time you were free to either obey God or disobey Him. Otherwise, you were compelled to disobey God. Jesus set you free. You can choose to obey Him. You can choose to disobey Him. But you couldn't do that before you were converted. You couldn't choose to obey Him. You chose only to disobey him. We sinned prior to our salvation because it was our nature to sin. And as I said, we could do nothing contrary to our nature. Just as a dog has to act like a dog because they have a nature of a dog. The same thing with a cat. It has to act like a cat because it is the nature of a cat. Listen, we've had dogs. We try to humanize those little dogs. You know, you... you uh, well, I won't go into all that. But um, I don't want to give away our our silly things, the way we treated our dogs. But as much as we tried to baby these dogs, they were not human babies. And that became very obvious based on where they were sniffing. I'll leave that to your imagination. You can't humanize a dog. And so an unconverted human must act like a sinner because he has the nature of a sinner. And that's why an unconverted sinner is unable to come to Christ on his own. He doesn't want to. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't have the ability to do that because he doesn't have the desire to do that. And he doesn't have the desire to believe in Christ because his sinful nature inclines him. It bends him in only one direction. That direction is to sin, to reject Christ. And if God left him, if God left her, in that condition, they would be lost forever. That's why his situation is hopeless without God intervening. But you may wonder, if people are unable to come to Christ on their own, and why would Jesus invite sinners to come to him if they have no ability to even do this? And you know what, that is an excellent question. If you've thought that, that's a very good question. And the answer is because though unconverted sinners are unable, to come to Christ they're still note this they're still responsible to come to Christ unable but they are responsible to come to him it's not God's fault that they don't come and can't come it's their fault you see there unsaved people are not only sinners by Adam's sin original sin but they are sinners by their own choice look at it this way if a man is in the army And he's told by his commanding officer that he's being sent into the battlefield tomorrow. And he decides to break his leg in order to avoid going into combat. Though he's unable to do now what his commanding officer told him to do. He's still responsible to do it. And he'll be punished by his commanding officer for his disobedience. Similarly, the Bible commands all of us to repent and trust Christ as Lord and Savior. And though we are unable to do this on our own, We're still responsible to repent and trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. This is why the doctrine, folks, of total depravity is so important to understand because once you realize how utterly sinful you really are and therefore how impossible it is for you to come to Christ on your own, suddenly it dawns on you. You grasp how incredibly gracious God has been to you in giving you Christ as your Savior. And that's when observing the Lord's Supper becomes that much more meaningful to you because now you have a deeper appreciation for the cross of Jesus Christ. You were utterly helpless. No ability to come to faith in Him. If God left you on your own, you'd be doomed to go to hell for all of eternity. It was the theologian brilliant theologian benjamin warfield who said these words he said the calvinist is a man who has seen god and who having seen god in his glory is filled on the one hand with a sense of his own unworthiness to stand in god's sight as a creature and much more as a sinner and on the other hand with adoring wonder that nevertheless this god is a god who receives sinners That pretty much describes us. Totally unworthy, totally sinful as creatures, as sinners, but in awe of our God who has made salvation for us. If he has received you, and I didn't say if you've received him, if he has received you, then stand in adoring wonder of him. That's what this doctrine leads us to do now it's in observing the lord's supper we see how precious the death of jesus really is because if jesus hadn't died for us we'd be hopeless totally lost in our total depravity without any hope of ever being reconciled to god no hope at all doctrine of total depravity reveals how as i said utterly completely sinful we are and therefore how unable we are to save ourselves before a holy god but god in His grace and His mercy, saved us from total depravity by sending Christ to die in our place and to then totally save us from hell. Let's stand for closing prayer. Our Father, we thank You for what we've been able to study. Lord, thank You for the this incredible doctrine this doctrine of total depravity we're not proud of the fact that we are totally depraved but we are so grateful that in our depravity you didn't leave us there but brought us to faith in christ and i pray if there's someone here who's never really trusted you that they will tonight that they'll see how sinful they really are and how much they need christ as savior and only as you draw them to yourself can they come to faith in you so lord send us home with encouragement Help us to leave adoring you for being the great God that you are and for reaching us in our lost estate. This we pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.